if I can just get the first word out, usually if the rest of the talk flows from there. <laughs> I feel a little constipated tonight. <laughs> Better erase that from the talk. <laughs> so when last we left our hero, we were heading from form to formlessness, right? And I was explaining the spiritual journey in terms of those two concepts, just giving you a sense of where all of this goes, where, where our, our diligent work uh, is meant to, be, uh, to serve us. <clears throat> and uh, I think that although I touched upon it last time, I would like to go more into specifically uh, how our practice works towards that end. Uh, because uh, it can sometimes feel... Uh, so even though we may have a conceptual outlay of where the practice, the spiritual journey goes, uh, it may not be completely uh, understandable wh why we do what we're doing within the practice that leads in that direction. And so from a slightly different perspective than just relaying the instructions and explaining those, I'd like to take a different slant on it tonight. <clears throat> but let's just look at the, the problem. Um, the problem, as we had put it out before, was that sort of the perceptual way we hold or fix upon the world is very frozen. It's a sense of things being outside of us. And it seems... Uh, almost uns uh, insurmountable. Uh, it seems like, how, do, how can we possibly get over that perception? Every time I open my eyes, that's what I see. I feel myself in here, and I feel everything uh, external to that. And it just seems almost, uh, it just seems uh, almost impossible to, to uh, change that perception. And so uh, we, what we often do is we just sort of accommodate that perception within our practice, and we just, that's sort of the given. We never really question the given. We just relate from the given. So I've got a problem. I try to surmount that problem. I try to do something with the problem. I try to do what I would have done had I never meditated at all about a problem, except now I'm doing it inwardly within my own processes. I have emotions I like and that I don't like, and I try to sort them out so that the ones that I like come more frequently and the ones that I don't like don't come as frequently, as often. Right? And so we, we just are so contained within that mindset that it's very, very difficult to see outside of it. And I think, first of all, we just need to acknowledge what we're up against the depth of that conditioning, to see the world in terms of me and, and the objects within it, the sense of separation. Now, it's not so difficult, and you've heard probably many Dharma talks talking about selflessness. But in the course of my training, I didn't hear very many talks about the actual fact of separation. Of course, selflessness relates to the way we perceive, 
But the sense of separation, as I was mentioning in the previous talk, is much more of a whole paradigm uh, of virtual understanding within that paradigm. And so that we keep asserting what separation is virtually within every body, speech, and mind activity. The way we think, the way we act, the way we effort, the way we try to control, the way we influence, everything is contained within and holds a relevance to the perception of separation. And within that perception of separation, one component of it is selflessness. But the paradigm of separation doesn't fall apart merely because you've seen the truth of selflessness. In fact, we can continue very much within the paradigm of selflessness feeling very empty in ourself. Because the fix, the, per the perceptual fix can remain even though we're not particularly seen from a point of reference. And as long as there's two, there's going to be a rub between those two. Even if it's a very uh, spacious object or subject, still any formation of a sense of object or subject, there will be some rubbing between the two. That rubbing is what in Buddhism refers to the struggle at the heart of what we are attempting to alleviate. So when I have us going from form to formlessness, that sounds pretty nice, except there's still two, right? It's like, <laughs> so how does this excursion from seeing the world of objects as objects and me as a subject move itself to formlessness where the abiding sense of it is a sense of the sacred or the presence or the awareness that surrounds all form. Still, there's the awareness that surrounds all form. There has to be a rub there, even if it's a very light rub, because very, awareness certainly has a spacious quality too, but there must be something. Anytime there's two, you just have to get this point. There's going to be some degree of suffering within that alignment. <clears throat> so how does the practice work with that? Okay, so that's the question. So let's look. The Buddha said, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the Buddha said because that would be uh, an academic, and this is not academic. This, everything I say tonight is or can be realized. But to start us off, he did say that all things are of the same essence. Now, if all things are of the same essence, then somehow form and formless must, must somehow be of the same essence. He didn't say all things of form were the same essence. He said all things, everything, all things were of the same essence. So how do we reconcile, how do we bring together the objects that we see and seem so hard 
and so firm and so dense. And the sacred, formless awareness that seems just the opposite of that. How do we reconcile those opposites? Now that takes us into the meditation and what its true intent and purpose and direction is. But let me start you way back at the very beginning when you first undertook the practice and you walked into this room called meditation and it's a little bit like trying to be a crane operator for the first time. You have all these gears and levers and the, you're in there just try, you know, trying to get them to work and they're just moving, crashing into walls. and <laughs> You don't really know what you're doing. And it's just kind of hectic in there, right? And so much of the early training is just trying to get the thing to rise when I push this thing and move over here and settle down here. <laughs> and uh, so it takes a long time just to kind of get the, the, the management of it, get, get the management of it. And then, from that crane called meditation and how we operate it, we look up. And what do we see in the room, metaphorically, is a room full of one-way mirrors. And we hadn't expected that. We were too just trying to get our attention to stay here and trying to accommodate a physical sensation there and to know what we're thinking about over here. And, and suddenly, all of that stuff we see as a reflection back. Everywhere we look in the room, we see our reflection because it's a continuous one-way mirror. Now I'm going to speed ahead just a little bit and then I'm going to come back. But at some point we get up and we start looking closely at the mirror. And now I don't know how many of you have been in a room with one-way mirrors, but as you approach the mirror and you get very close, at first, you just see your blemishes from the reflection. You see what your image is. But as you approach and you look at that reflection ever so steadily, you can actually see through a one-way mirror that doesn't have the silver backing. You can see through it. And you go, my God, you know, the, the reflection is transparent. It's translucent. Okay, so now I'm going to back us up again. And I say, okay, so that's where the reflection ultimately goes. But when we begin, it's much more like having two mirrors that face each other. Have you ever done that? When I was a child, I would have a mirror and I would have my little mirror and then I would try to look to see the reflection of the reflection of the reflection of the reflection of the reflection. And it was so enamoring because I thought, as I saw the endless series of reflection, I was actually looking into infinity as it just went back and sort of diminished into darkness, right? And that was fascinating to me. <clears throat> but meditation is much more like that sequential series of reflecting upon the reflection and the reflection and the reflection and the reflection and the reflection. And so I think what I would like to do tonight is to unpeel a few of those reflections so that we can actually look at them, see what we're facing, see what we see, see what the mind brings to what we see as opposed to what actual reflection is of what we see and see if we can't reconcile this sense of form and formlessness being of the same essence 
through the examination of what those reflections are in essence. Because hmm? it appears, when I look in the image, of a very solid me. There I am. My name, my image, I can see everything. I can see my history. If I looked at the lines of my face, I can, I can see it all. Now, I want to mention that the art of working with reflection is simply to see the reflection. Do not try to change what you see. So that's the key to being able to see all the way to infinity is to see the reflection just as it is rather than trying to alter it and to fit your or our particular image of what we see. We don't like that, so would somebody please hand me the mascara? You know, we're not doing mascara work here. Where this is bare witnessing, bare witnessing of what the image is without any beautification whatsoever. That's hard, and I share the difficulty of that with those of you who are in the throes of rebelling against what you see. The first time you look up, may I say, it's quite horrific what we see, anyone. And that's why ever since this work began, people said self-knowledge is bad news because what you see doesn't fit your idea of a decent person nor your idea of a spiritual person. You see the blemishes. You see the reflections back of what we are. And it, you go into shock. In fact, I'll lose a great number of meditators if I'm doing a six weeks beginning meditation course on the fourth week, about two, uh, th only uh, two thirds of the group will show up for that fourth week. It took that long to get the, the mechanism of the, the uh, mechanics of it down. Then they saw, and then they don't show up the next week. <laughs> because it's like, oh my God, look how vain I am. Look how old I am. You know, it's just the, the raw information coming back from just seeing is very, very difficult to steady our attention to. We, some of us who are more experienced in our years into the process may have forgotten that, but it's quite a shock. And I, I want to honor the fact that people who are still in that particular bite of their image. But we're called upon through the through the encouragement of the instructions, uh, not towards self-beautification. This is just seeing. And a, something begins to happen when we're willing to just see. First of all, we have to ask, what good is just seeing? I have an emotion. What good is it just to see it? How does that help me? How does that get rid of it? You see, we're still asking questions from the paradigm of trying to solve our problems which is the subject-object way of working. And so when we look at our reflection, we see problems. We see what, where we would like to cure this thing. Now to switch paradigms so that there is not a duality in place, 
we have to see non-dualistically. We have to see just with the sense of just seeing and not trying to fix what we see. As soon as we go into fixing mode, we've gone into self-improvement mode, which is very different than self-understanding, which is the point of just seeing. Just seeing, bare attention, bare witnessing, has as its byproduct wisdom, understanding what you see. Now, if you're in there and you're reacting to what you see, you're not going to understand it. If you're in there trying to fix what you see, you're not going to understand it. If you're trying to improve what you see, you're not going to understand it because you're not interested in understanding it. You're interested in changing it so it fits your particular ideal. And therefore, you're not interested in really learning what it is. You're interested in changing it so that it will be to its improvement and yours as well. You see, so that's, that's such a key point. It's often passed over. And, but it's the linchpin for making this thing work. This is a method, this is a practice of wisdom, of wisdom, of understanding. That's what moves us. Not our efforts to get over, not our sense of control, not our attempt to influence, simply the willingness to understand what is being reflected back. Okay, so let's explore what holds us to form, what cements and fixes us to the sense of form. Well, to do that, let's take the first image, the first of this infinite number of reflections with these two mirrors. What's the first one that probably 99% of us, whereas our 99% of our attention is located? Where it's, it's on appearance. Just the basic skin level appearance of what we see. And we get fixated there because that in fact is where most of our life is fixated upon ourselves and others. Now it's an interesting, it's very interesting why we do that. We freeze it at the level of appearance because if we can beautify appearance, nobody will want to move beyond appearance. They'll be so enamored by our appearance that they won't want to reach in and know what's under the surface of that. Because most of us are so afraid for people to know what's under the surface of that, we'd like them to just stay with the sense of appearance that they see. You see? And so we are very protective or defensive about anyone moving closer so that they can get a sense of us beyond just what the mirror is reflecting. And so much of our cosmetic industry, all of our cosmetic industry, much of our energy goes into that kind of beautification. And then, literally, it's skin deep. And so that gives us a sense of kind of satisfaction. Uh, it it uh, allows us to be very much in control and to do what we can to improve that appearance that holds people so that they won't move very deeply in relationship to that. And it also kind of, along the lines, the same level of understanding and wisdom that comes from just the appearance of what we see, we also have a kind of a, begin to see the topography of our life. That's part of the appearance that comes in. And many of you in the course of the retreat have related to both of us about how 
your life contains so much stress, how it contains so much worry, how it contains so much anxiety, how it uh, needs, your job doesn't work for you. See, that's the topography. That's the layout of the land. And that's also part of the appearance of what we are doing and what we're about and how we move and what we carry with us and the burdens. And many of us are tied to the sense of me being the burdensome person that has has this disease or that problem or this loss or all of that. That's the topography. And we would very much like to stay there because it's within word reach. It's very easily said. We could create an image. You know, I've just lost my husband and I don't mean in any way to assume that that's not extraordinarily difficult, but it does keep us arrested on just the topography of the landscape, you see. And I'm not in any way suggesting that that isn't something that we need to grieve and to work through. But that's our communication is really on a very thin level of all these reflections that are go way back to infinity. And as long as we can hold people on kind of the, the mechanism of our narrative and what's happened to us and the history of it, then again, we don't sink into a deeper understanding of what those images really contain and how this world of form merges with the world of formless. Again, that is not a criticism for the very important work we do at that level, but to only know ourselves from that level can be very limiting indeed. Okay, so then let's move into the next level. And as we move through it, you'll see that a more subtlety begins to be encouraged forth. And so at some point, we get satiated with the appearances, and it's like, so what? You know, so I've got blemishes. So does the person next to me. <laughs> and so it just, you just are, you know, it's like, okay. And it really does kind of bring you down a step into your humanity when you realize that the faults that we thought weren't so obvious are. It says, you know, most of us know the fault of the person we're speaking to, and the other person who is speaking is so defensive in showing us the, what we already know about them. Is it true? And you go, oh, well, if it could just be willing to express and share that, the whole thing would just kind of fall down into a deeper level of intimacy and relaxation already. But anyway, that's... Uh, the first level, and now we go into the second level. So now we have the two mirrors facing each other, right? And we're looking at the second reflection instead of just the appearance. So what's that one? Well, that we see the body. We see body. We see me. Now I'm going to stop you here because I'm going to give you an exercise. Homework. I'm going to send you to bed with homework. And I want each of you to hold a mirror up to your face. And I want you to see what the mirror sees. And then I want you to see what you bring to the image that is not intrinsic to what the mirror sees. What does the mirror see? Does it see me? Where's the me in that reflection? What does it see? Age, I'm getting so old, I'm getting... Doesn't see that. It just sees, right? 
It just reflects back. So get a sense of how much we bring to the reflection. And may I say, just as a warning, you bring everything to it. <laughs> All the mirror sees is shape and color. Everything else, density, history, judgment, all of that is mind created. And we're getting the sense then from this simple exercise. If you do it and you really, okay, so what does the mirror see here? It's very sobering because it doesn't stop with your image. This is the way you invest, we invest in virtually every object in the world, not just the image of oneself. Every object is known historically through memory, through knowledge and remembrance. Every object. And the density of that object is because of the investment we have within that object. You know, I, I once went to a, it was simultaneously a museum that had two works, cultural works of art in, on the top floor, which was the, which was what was the showing that was current was the Jap Japanese Zen art. And on the second floor was Western art. And as you went up to the Japanese art, you stop in the Western world, everything is dense and heavy and emotional and and uh, just a, a sense of weight, weight, weighted objects. And then you walked up to the next floor to, and, and all the figures that were wisps, just a, like a single brushstroke, just like, whew, like that. And yet the whole scene was communicated through that simple brushstroke. And the sense of the person wasn't outside the sense of the entirety of the frame of reference, which is, was often mountains and streams and trees and, or they have two little figures just with a couple of brushstrokes down laughing together or whatever. Just the beauty of that, of that formless quality. So even culturally, it can be depicted very differently. And certainly, it looks very different when we look into the mirror and we see our bodies. Because we bring that Western density to it, that heaviness, that laborsome quality and burden because it's not just the body we see, but we see what the body's history has been. And it calls forth, perhaps, whatever scar tissue we associate with the body and all of that. And then, of course, all of our sadnesses regarding the looking or the appearance of the body not taking the shapes of the magazine covers that we see on the, grand, on the stands and all of that. And, and yet we're asked in this practice, just to enter and see, just to look. See, when you look and not infuse the image with what the mind is doing, then you can begin to understand and see what the image really is. As soon as you're reacting to the image because it's overweight and it's all this and it's too old, and uh, then you're not seeing it at all. You're seeing what the mind did to the image, but you're not seeing the image anymore. And so in meditation, we're asked to move into this thing, to see what body is as body, as Narayan was talking about last night. The body in the body, 
Is it owned? In the Satipatthana Sutta, the first foundation, which is the foundation of the body, the Buddha says, enter it without knowledge or remembrance. What you've known about it, what you remember it to be, enter it without a big story, without words. See what it's really there. And as we enter this thing, it begins to feel more extraordinarily spacious. Not the density or the packaging that we paint or that we associate with the image that's being reflected back, but, but the actual experience of the body is vacuous. In fact, the lines or distinction or where we call body and where we say this is the edge, which from the eye point of view or from the image, we can say the skin line, of course, that's where I stop and where the external world begins. But from the actual experience of that, I dare say find that line. Enter your body and see if you can find that distinct line that's drawn so clearly between the external and the internal world. And see if it's not porous, just with points of sensation. And so then that compels a richer and more intimate and more uh, curious form of expression and in, in, into the next reflective reflection of the mirror. Now these, let me just say that the reflections go on and on and on. So it's not like we have to work with an infinite number of them, but we have to take them on until we they all take us to the same place, really. And we have to have worked with them sufficiently so that intrinsic to our understanding of density and form is this sense of open possibility. Not frozen in the knowledge of what I know it to be, but open, formless, created by mind, but not in itself a creation. Created by mind. And you'll get a sense of that as you look into your reflection. How much of this is just me inside saying something to what is there, about what is there? Doesn't intrinsically hold that at all. And therefore, it has no density, except the density that I project onto it. And so the next reflection, the next image that we take on, each one with an adventuresome spirit and a sense of curiosity. Those are the, that's the staff that we need. We need the, the sense of adventure and curiosity. Let me see. Let me see this. And the next sense, the third reflection, now we start getting a sense of the emotional life we're in. The emotional, the attitudinal assumptions we live with, right? The states of mind that drive us insane. And we begin to sense we make so much out of them. There's so much drama around them. We have made them such a fact, such a, such a point in history, such an established reference to our life. But when we look at them, 
when you look at your emotional life, when we look at our inward life, where is the solidity of what we see? Where does it form as a certainty? How can it, this, which is just, it's, I mean, it's, it's like fog, or at the most it's just, I don't know, it's, it can't be, words don't seem to, or at least my words don't seem to be able to approach them. What's a thought? What's an emotion? What, what is all of this in turn? I mean, it should be something hard if it's going to make something hard and project something hard by what it sees. It should be hard. It should be something, you know, I set this there and then that's what. But it isn't. It's a smoke screen. So why is it that I see so matter-of-factly from that smoke screen? You see? So let me move down a little more deeply into this sense of emotionality, and I'll begin to show you why this solidity takes shape. Because in there, a little more, as we begin to welcome ourselves into our emotional life, our emotional life lightens up a little. But there is still often a central or a central issue that drives most of us. Each one of us have a central issue that our psyche is mostly formed around. Now for Westerners, that issue has usually something to do with inadequacy. Because of the way the culture is configured, it's configured towards our disadvantage of having a positive self-image. You don't go through school and win, even if you're straight A. There's somebody up ahead of you. Yeah? And so with the comparison and the judgments and just the latent hardness of the culture and the need, we need to know this. It's not a political statement. The market-driven quality that needs you to want and feel the scarcity and poverty in yourself in order to buy becomes part of what's invested or that is given to you, that you need this. And so when you need this, and every billboard says you need this, and every commercial says you need that, guess what the residue of the psychology says? I'm not good. I don't have it all. I'm not adequate. I'm not sufficient to master this culture and have what I need to have to be able to feel proficient. And so that's, that's not a culture. Every culture has its baggage, but we need to know what that is and how it's impacting our systems. And so there it is. We see it. We see it. We see the neediness, the, the forever grasping that, we, that comes from a poverty of spirit, from a sense of lacking. Somebody who's content does not grasp. Somebody who's needy and has a scarcity of being, that's, that's where the re arm is reached. Okay, so we see that. All right, so, but we, we, at the kernel, the central core issue that many of us carry with us throughout our life, engendered when we were relatively young and calcified and never re-examined, usually has something to do with insufficiency. 
Now let's just, okay. That is, that is what we believe to be true about ourselves. Okay, if you were going to protect the most important thing from anyone else's sight, it would not be your money, it wouldn't even be your significant others. It would be that fact. That's how charged that fact is for us. We will go through hell before we will face this core issue. Because that is what we believe we are. Other things, you know, I can see, you know, a uh, little bit selfish, a little bit, you know, all right. But this one, this one has the fires of damnation with it. Okay, so when we, and after we have bottomed out sufficiently and trying to escape it in every way possible, and we realize there's no other thing we can do, we begin to call it forth. Let me see. Let me look at this. And to do so, what we don't want to do is reinvest the reaction we have to it back into it because then it just recirculates back as the same product again and again. Which is where awareness comes in, which I will talk about in just a second. But let me tell you that that's where our density comes from, our fear of that core issue, of it being seen. We are so protective of it, and we act as if it's so true that we make all of, its, all of the compensation and activities we do from it, and all of the ways we see and the judgments we hold to be equally as true as that which drives those judgments. The world is a mirror of how we hold ourselves. And there it is. And so we make everybody a replication of our own insistence, of our own certainty, self-certainty. And that then everybody else holds the same judgment. I have the same judgments about you as I do about me. If I see an act, a behavior that represents part of me, you get labeled with the identical. See, we hold each other. We hold each other in contempt. And through that, we mutually reinforce the image of the other. Okay, so now where awareness comes in here, there's something very beautiful that I hope I can impart because this is not a death sentence to live with this. There's an opportunity if we're willing to go into this particular reflection, three reflections back, that at this where there is uncertainty about the self-assumption can only be in one place. Not in the past where it was engendered. Not working out what my mother did to me. That just reaffirms the fact that I give truth to it. Now. Now is the only place that it can be worked out. In now, in presence, it doesn't solidify. And therefore, we can see the solidification of the past as it arises within the present, and it can't be reinvested back into, and it's like bats flying out of a cave. You're sitting at the mouth of the cave, and bats are just flying out. They're trying to get your attention, and you're simply being aware and letting them fly.
and they don't form into Batman. <laughs> Just As soon as we turn around from the mouth and face our history without reference to the present, then we are lost in the history. No matter what we try to do, we struggle with it, and the struggle reconfirms our belief in it and just ties us into a deeper knot. The only way we can face is outward. The only way we can face is with the present, and that solves the quandary of the density. Because we realize that it's just the past relating through the present. It is not the truth of the present. The truth of the present is the open mouth of the cave. And it's at the open mouth of the cave where the bats can fly. And that's the kind of work we're doing here. We're relieving the density factor through our willingness to look and see just for what it is, not try to make anything out of it whatsoever. I'm on the third reflection of an infinite number and I have five minutes left to go in my talk. (laughs) The next reflection back, as we sit and watch the endless number of reflections, is how Words form themselves. How through an, a thought, just the, the passing of a, a series of words, which is nothing, which is nothing, get a sense that there's nothing to a thought. It lasts as long as the thought lasts. But when we look through the thought, each concept holds the world as an abstract thing freezing it, forcing it into what the fixed quality of that word holds. It becomes a thing that cannot move, that, that will always be fixed within the consciousness because we're seeing through the abstract. And we begin to see that. We begin to see that the world is being formed moment after moment by, by the light of attention going through, the innocence of attention, The innocence is just innocent awareness being confiscated by the word and labeled and fixated by that word. And so we're literally walking through life with the red-colored glasses, and all we see is red. All we see is the established certainty of the concept that the glasses are giving us. My God, what's on the other side of this? What's it like to experience life without conceptualizing it? You see, that's where all of this has taken us from day one when we were on the breath. We say, just be with the breath. And what you really do is you think about being on the breath. Think, how am I, oh, I'm doing really well. Gosh, you know, that was a great breath I just did. (laughs) And there's a layer of ideas we have about the breath that keeps us from actually experiencing what the breath is. And when we do touch the breath, the, the mind goes, wreaks havoc. It says, this is boring. Get away from this thing. It feels that it's dangerous not to lead with concepts. So it tries to have you withdraw 
from that with any manner of states of mind that it has to control your swing of attention. So that you'll go back to thinking rather than actually experiencing. But the point of it, the point of being attentive to the breath is twofold. One, to establish attention and steady attention. The second is to know the difference between the concept and the reality of that. So that we can begin to see or feel the world as an alive experience rather than the conceptual way that we feel it, which is just what we think about it. And we see that. We see that. And suddenly a a chink in form falls away. You see, all this becomes very translucent now. Very ephemeral. And then we move into the next reflection of self-formation. The sense of I, the holder of the knowledge about the world, See, the world is going to rise directly proportional to my knowledge about it. And if I'm the holder of the knowledge of something, there's going to be the, the knower and then the known are going to rise simultaneously together. So if I know something in fact, there is the knower of that fact. And that's why in this culture, said gently, we place our cathedrals in terms of the people who are most intellectually wise, intellectually, philosophically wise. Because this is not a wisdom-based culture. It is a knowledge-based culture. But we begin to see that. We begin to sense that in ourselves. That this thing called me, the solidness, the way I see the world is directly proportional to the way I feel about myself. If I'm solid and reactive and, and clamped down, the world looks like that, exactly that shape. And when I'm quiet, then the world begins to lose its distinction, its, its expression of concreteness, and it loosens. And we begin to understand that form never was outside of the formless. It was never different than the formless. That the form contained formlessness at all times. We just manufactured conceptually around the formless, making it something. And therefore, form and formless are identical. They are of the same essence. And therefore, there is nowhere to move, to go from form to the formless. There is no traversing. There's nowhere to move. There is no need to seek. There is only the need to be still and to see what is really there, not what our eyes betray, but what is actually there. And then it is known, form and formless. The journey's resolution is where we started. 
And it is there that I end my talk. <laughs> Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So remembering the homework assignment and remembering the meditation is really about that alchemy, the alchemy, the alchemy that comes with us just willing to see, just willing to bear witness. It doesn't require anything from us. And when we do offer it something, we reform the world from that doing. It does not require an activity, a manipulation, an influence, or even an effort. It requires seeing, which does nothing, does not influence any more than light influences you. Light doesn't put pressure on you. It doesn't pull you one way. It doesn't judge what it sees. And so too, our clear, bare witnessing does not do anything either. It just sees. And as you see, you go through image and then reflection and image and image and image, reflection after reflection. And when we have learned to unfix, you see all the way to infinity. So enjoy the remaining days. They're precious, precious and available for seeing. What could be more precious than that? <laughs>